What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 6 of the Education Research Reading Room. The podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose land this podcast was recorded. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. On the same topic, this podcast is being released just after the end of May 2017, which was a significant time for Australia's First Peoples. May 26th was the 20th anniversary of the Bringing Them Home report. This report acknowledged that, quote, Indigenous children have been forcibly separated from their families and communities since the very first days of the European occupation of Australia. This was an important acknowledgement. However, it's beyond unfortunate that the rate of removal of Aboriginal children from their families remains exceedingly high, with Aboriginal children representing 35% of children in out-of-home care despite constituting only 5.5% of their age population. Those are 2016 figures. May 27, 2017 was also an important day as it marked 50 years since the 1967 referendum. This referendum enabled the government to make specific laws that applied to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that could assist in addressing inequalities. In the show notes, I've linked to a number of resources that teachers can use to teach about these topics. And a big thanks to Max Lenoy, at Black Academic on Twitter, and that's black with a K, for compiling these notes as part of the ERRR's acknowledgement of country for this episode. Now, onto the show. This episode, we're talking to Jennifer Stevenson. Jennifer is an honorary research fellow and associate professor at Macquarie University. She has a background in teaching students with severe disabilities and over 20 years' experience in preparing special educators. Her research interests include the use of effective and ineffective practices in special education, augmentative and alterative communication for students with severe disabilities, students with autism spectrum disorder, challenging behaviour, and the use of iPads with children with a disability. She has published over 80 refereed journal articles and book chapters. Jennifer's paper that we read was entitled Factors in Instructional Decision-Making, Ratings of Evidence and Intended Instructional Practices of Australian Final Year Teaching Education Students. This article details Jennifer's survey with 290 pre-service teachers in their final year of teacher training. The survey aimed to discover how well these pre-service teachers were able to distinguish between evidence-based and non-evidence-based instructional practices and to determine which sources of information and which experiences most influences the practices that these teachers plan to adopt in their classroom. This paper prompted a really interesting discussion and even a little instructional practices quiz that was held for the attendees of the ERRR. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode six of the ERRR with Jennifer Stevenson. So Jennifer Stevenson, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you. Um, the question we usually start off with, with the, in these events is uh, if you're at a party and you kind of meet someone and they ask you the question, hi, Jenny, what is it that you do? What is your answer? I usually just say I'm an academic and then if they want to go into it a bit further, 
Um, I do. So I'm a special education academic at the moment, part-time, Cool. semi-retired. Fantastic. And could you tell us a little bit about uh, your journey to, to where you are now? Well, back in a long time ago, I did start out as a high school science teacher. Then I left and had children and I taught in TAFE for a little while. And of course, the students that come back to TAFE are often students that have had difficulty with the school system for one reason or another. Um, So when I was ready to go back to full-time work, I thought I'd go back as a special educator, specifically a learning support teacher in a high school to try and head off some of the things that went wrong for these students. Um, But while I was doing my special education training, which is additional training, I was sent on a prac to a classroom with students with severe and multiple disabilities. And I really loved that prac placement. So for high school Learning support went by the board and I worked in um, classrooms for kids with severe and multiple disabilities and particularly those that also had challenging behaviour. And I realised I didn't know enough to be doing a good job so I started a master's and they said, would you like to do a master's by research? And I said, yes. And then they said, would you like to do a PhD? And I said, yes. So I did a PhD and then I went back into schools for a little while and then I ended up as an academic. Wow. A whirlwind tour. (laughs) Um, when, when you first did that practical with those students with special needs and that, that helped you to decide kind of on a new direction, can you pinpoint a moment or a student or, or some situation when you were really like, wow, you know, this is for me? Um, I think what made me decide special ed is for me is when we got our first assignment and I went down to the library and I discovered that there was scientific research about education that told you what practices worked, especially for children with special needs. Special ed is much more research-based than regular ed and that was a real eye-opener because in my teacher training, no one had ever suggested that there was scientific-type research into education. So that's what education and science came together for me and away I went. Fantastic. I'm, I'm really curious by what you just said in terms of uh, special ed is much more research-based than normal education. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, I think people, um, special education academics and special education um, training courses for teachers who come and do special ed after they've done regular ed, it's just much more research-based. Everything that I was taught in my course they could they people could talk could point to research studies that supported that it worked and as an academic I wouldn't teach anything that didn't have a research base or I tell the students it didn't have a research base it was just our best guess and the other thing is that as a special education teacher you also work in the science practitioner model Um, where you have specific aims, you collect regular data, you look at your data to see if the kids are actually learning anything and if they're not, you change something. The whole approach is much more scientific and it's easy because you've only got six, seven kids in a class, not 20 or 30. Great. So you you mentioned a, a master's project then and you also mentioned a PhD. What were the foci of those two projects? Um, augmentative and alternative communication um, was the focus of both of them. 
many students, well, not many, a very small percentage actually of students with high support needs are unable to use speech for communication, um, but some of them can learn to recognise pictures and touch pictures as a way of telling you what you want. And I was particularly interested in students who were just beginning to be realised that pictures can be symbols for the objects that they represent. So my research for my master's and PhD was in that area. I think now we might turn to the paper that was nominated for this evening's event. The paper that we're looking at is entitled Factors in Instructional Decision-Making, Ratings of Evidence and Intended Instructional Practices of Australian Final Year Teacher Education Students. I was wondering if, as a starting point, you could kind of introduce us to the genesis of this paper and how it kind of came into being. Okay, well, I ended up at the Macquarie University Special Education Centre as an academic there, and the centre has a very strong commitment to research-based practice, as I did myself, so it was a very congenial place to end up, and my colleague Mark Carter and myself are very interested in promoting research-based, evidence-based practice. Um, We'd done some research before looking at what teachers actually do in their classrooms, We'd done some work on whether special educators actually used research-based practices in their classrooms. Um, I guess we kind of had the idea that regular education courses weren't as research-based as our special ed courses, and this was something we thought we'd have a look at. There was the Bain paper from America where they'd looked at that and discovered that teachers generally didn't know a lot about research-based practice, and that was probably what set us off down this path. And, of course, Hattie's book had come out, which was a handy source for things that do have a sound base and things that don't. Great. So there were a number of questions. Well, there were five main questions that you set out to answer in this research uh, study. Um, Uh I was keen for us to focus on on three of them today. So maybe I'll I'll read them out and then we can kind of work through each of those questions and some of the major findings from them. So the first of the five was, what do final year, and I'm paraphrasing, but what do final year student teachers say most influences their instructional practices? Uh, so this was, you know, when a student, when a final year teacher come to try to decide how to teach their class, what is it that informs that decision? Uh, and that was the options that were provided in the survey were research evidence, personal style, teacher preparation programs, advice from teachers and practicum experience. So that was one mm-hmm. of the first ones. The second one was a final year teacher or a final year student teacher is able to classify common instructional practices as evidence-based or non-evidence-based. And the third one I was keen to look at is what is the relationship between student-teacher ratings of research support and empirical evidence for common instructional practices? So back to that first one, what do final year student teachers say most influences their instructional practices? What were some of the findings? Uh, Well, first of all, what did you expect when you set that question? Well, we weren't too sure what to expect. Um, We know that teachers pay more attention to advice from other teachers than they do to the research literature. And for professional learning, they like professional learning from people who they think have got classroom experiences very similar to their own. So we thought research probably wouldn't be terribly highly rated. Um, We also thought 
that a lot of teacher education programs, when they present a unit, are inclined to give students a guided tour through a range of theories and practices and leave them to make up their own minds and that, in fact, developing your own personal philosophy or style of teaching is one of the things mainstream education programs like students to do. So we weren't really sure. What was it that you found? Well, we found that um, personal style and philosophy was the thing that was going to most influence their decisions about what to teach, which I suppose wasn't a, a huge surprise, and that um, research evidence was what, about number three, I haven't got all the results on the, off the top of my head, um, they were influenced by their practicum experiences, which isn't surprising because most people like to rely on their own personal experiences when they make decisions. Um, yeah, okay. Maybe I could read out some excerpts from the, the paper. There was, I, th I think it had, practicum experience was highest ranked by a substantial margin and was significantly higher than all other factors. Yep. Uh, as, as you mentioned, personal philosophy and style was second ranked significantly higher than all other factors except practicum. And the third highest ranked factor was empirical research, which was significantly higher than teacher, teacher preparation programs. And teacher advice, yep. Yes, and advice from other teachers and research in general. what I'm really – practicum experience – I mean, both these first ones coming out to me are very interesting because practicum experience is such a – well, I guess for a, for a final year teacher in teacher training, it's actually not such an insignificant portion of time because it's the majority of in-classroom time that they have. But it's a kind of an interesting relationship between practicum experience and advice from other teachers because I would have thought that your practicum experience or the, the techniques you pick up there are primarily from the other teacher and other teacher, that teacher being your mentor teacher. So did you see any correlation between those two factors? Well, I don't think the, the questionnaire was designed to do that, but I think most people would interpret their practicum experience as including the advice they got from their supervising or mentor teacher, whereas advice from other teachers is probably advice from teachers other than their practicum okay. teacher. Okay, got it. As, that's how I would interpret it anyway. Got it. Yeah. And this personal philosophy and style being second ranked, what, is, what does that actually mean for an individual to make an instructional choice based on personal philosophy and style? Yep, so presumably a person's developed their own philosophy of teaching and what they see as good teaching and good practice and then they'll try and make decisions in accord with that philosophical orientation. Okay. And as I say, a lot of um, teacher education courses do um, place a lot of weight on, on trainee teachers doing that. I was just going to ask where that personal philosophy comes from because they're obviously quite, we're talking about novice or like teachers in still studying. Is that through their previous degree or is it even based on their experience at school? Like where would you build that personal philosophy if it's not, I guess, from, it seems like such a an odd thing to be like, this is how you should teach. Yeah, well, I guess teacher education courses, I think, still f spend a certain amount of time on, on theorists. I mean, people get taught about Dewey and Piaget and probably even back to Rousseau and people like that. Um, so there's a certain amount of educational 
theory, because what education means by theory isn't what science means by a theory, um, in teacher education courses. And I guess people draw on that and their own personal experiences at school to develop how they think teachers should operate. We've got a comment from Catherine. And just for the record, that was Jasper who just spoke. Go, Catherine. Um, My experience, well, for instance, at UWS, there was a lot of sitting around writing what your personal (laughs) philosophy was for the first years. I remember that very well. But I think a lot of it is also the, the common sense version of what education is all about. There's an awful lot of common sense stuff out in circulation in the population. And as been observed, you know, what passes for common sense is usually a clapped out academic theory of some sort. But people, you know, you only have to look at the kind of discussions that break out on Facebook, not my Facebook group, other Facebook things that, you know, there's a lot of opinionating amongst people who have no formal training in education at all. And, you know, it tends to be the stock in trade stuff about what, you know, people believe about. Yeah, we won't go into what the details are, but I think a lot of it would probably come from that that common sense beliefs about kids and teaching and learning and all that kind of thing. I'm just thinking a question that kind of comes out of this when we're thinking about personal philosophy and style, and maybe I can throw the question back at you, Jasper. Do you think there's anything in terms of your personal teaching philosophy or style that has changed um, from when you first came out of your teacher education training program to now into your second year of teaching? Um, it's, I guess it's quite a big question. I think it definitely has changed, especially, I guess, at the the VCE level where from the course you were, I guess, I, my personal philosophy, I um, really like the idea of like, uh, I guess, that more sort of open learning and using real world examples and developing those skills of students but then I found the like teaching to a VCE curriculum constraining to an extent and I guess difficult initially to like break away from that and my then philosophy now is sort of I spent felt like I spent too much time with content and refining and then based on like PDs and reading and now it's definitely evolved where I am implementing a flipped classroom and I focus now more trying to learning how to learn as I guess the big uh, the main focus of my lesson and then that is working within psychology content but I guess yeah I'm such a new teacher and it's definitely evolved yeah since my first year where I've gone from oh got to get my slides done and give you the content because I'm so freaked out that I'm doing VCE and this is what you have to know and now I'm a lot more confident in I guess like going back to like my roots in terms of like learning what I did in this uh, in the masters and more confident in myself to try these sorts of things in the class so I guess yeah it's constantly and constantly evolving which I think is good practice so I can't say I don't know if it, it hasn't set yet and it will probably change and develop but 
Uh, that's my two cents. Yeah, an ongoing journey for sure. All right. So that was the first question, essentially what most influences uh, teachers' instructional practices. And we found out that it's, you know, that pra- the practical the practical experience and that personal philosophy. So the next question um, I wanted to jump into was question two, which is a final year student teacher is able to classify common instructional practices as evidence-based or non-evidence-based. So Jenny, you you chose Hattie's research as kind of the the classifier for evidence-based or not evidence-based. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the process of making that decision? Yeah, we kind of kicked around a few ideas for what we'd include and what we wouldn't include. We'd previously done um, research on evidence-based practice in special education, um, but some of those aren't really applicable to mainstream education, so we decided we'd go with Hattie and um, choose some of the ones that he thought had strong or showed had strong research support and some that he showed did not have as much research support. Um, So we chose those practices. And, of course, Hattie's a very useful reference to throw around in terms of pragmatics and research. For sure. Did did you feel that uh, that choice or the fact that you did uh, choose to or in some ways have to use a meta-analysis for this sort of a question, did you find that limiting in any way? Not really because the kinds of practices we chose are ones that we thought to um, or the non-supported ones would be fairly common out there and the supported ones were things that we thought perhaps should be more common than they are. So we thought the ones that we chose, you know, was a fair selection of things students would be familiar with. Great. Now, in the in the survey, because I've just got the list of the strategies here in front of me, in the mm-hmm. survey, did it have the definitions accompanying the uh, actual name name of the research of the intervention? Yes, we did. We gave a brief description of each of the um, of the interventions so that people would have some idea what we were talking about. Okay, great. I wanted to play a game right now with everybody here um, and actually do a little survey with the people in the room to see how we fare uh, in terms of practices being evidence-based or non-evidence-based. Uh, and yeah, it's 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 definitely not fair because some people, some people, some people, some people. Yeah, life's not fair. But edu- <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've got uh, differing levels of um, homework done for today's E Triple R. Some people read the abstract. Some people haven't haven't even done that, and some people read the whole paper. So we'll see if that correlates at all with with the answer. So what I might do is just get a bit of um, eyes closed voting going uh, for each of these different practices. And for some of them, I'll read out the definition. Uh, I might actually leave it to people to ask for a definition if they feel like they need one. Um, Otherwise, there won't be a definition given. Um, And listeners uh, to the podcast can play along at the same time. And what I'd I'd love for you to do is... (laughs) Yeah, make if you're driving your car, don't close your eyes though. Um, so, vo- voting, one finger means it's evidence-based, two fingers means it's non-evidence-based and also, Jenny, in your paper, you offered another option which was not sure or haven't really heard of it. That's right. And that, was, that can be three fingers. So, it's evidence-based, non-evidence-based uh, and not sure. Uh, but 
I will also read out some definitions and I'm just going to do them in alphabetical order. So at this point, we'll cut from the live interview because this quiz took a little while and I thought just for listeners, I'd, I'd make it a little bit more efficient. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll mention an intervention or an instructional practice. I'll give you a, about a second to think about whether you think it's non-evidence-based or evidence-based and then I'll give you the answer. And in some cases when I think perhaps it's a bit of a rare approach or an intervention, an approach that people haven't heard of before, I'll give a bit of a background as well or a definition. So the first one is multiple intelligences. The multiple intelligences is teaching that considers the, and accommodates multiple intelligences. For example, musical, bodily, kinesthetic, logical, mathematical, linguistic, spatial, interpersonal, etc. Is it evidence-based or not evidence-based? Turns out it's non-evidence-based. How about inquiry-based teaching? It involves developing challenging situations where students observe questions postulate explanations, devise and conduct experiments, analyze data, draw conclusions, and build models. Turns out this one is non-evidence-based. This is with an effect size of 0.33. Metacognitive strategies. So this is interventions that address higher-order thinking skills involving active control over cognitive processes. They may include verbal self-instruction, self-evaluation, and self-monitoring. And it turns out that these are evidence-based with an effect size of about 0.69. And this is one of the major topics that I talk about in the following episode of the ERRR when I speak uh, with, with colleagues to James Magnon about his intervention at CV High. What about perceptual motor programs? I hadn't actually heard of perceptual motor pro- programs prior to this, this paper from Jenny Stevenson. But what they are is improving or they claim to improve academic performance by addressing perceptual and motor skills such as visual motor abilities, physical coordination, balance activities, and body awareness. Turns out this is non-evidence-based. And at this point, we'll cut back to the interview uh, where Jenny has a chat and also Jasper has some comments about these such programs. perceptual motor programs the one so one person suggested it was evidence-based and three people were unsure jenny are these movement-based programs they're particularly for people with special needs aren't they um not necessarily i did a bit of a survey some time ago looking at the use of perceptual motor programs in schools and i have to say victoria was a hotbed of their use um and they're not evidence-based we've known that they don't work since about 1960 um so it's very sad to see them still out there and we're actually looking at doing a follow-up to see if schools are still using them and if so why that's a great idea yeah, I my brother had lots of like difficulties writing growing up and I, I'm the one that chose evidence based based purely because I remember my brother having to go through physical therapies in order to improve his learning capabilities and I I just was well, it's what I knew, so he had like special brushes that he'd have to brush his hands with. Oh, and... heavens above, no. Well, he might, his writing might have improved, but it wasn't because of that intervention. The brushes <laughs> come from um, sensory re- integration, which I remember is thinking definitely it not was evidence-based. ridiculous as a kid. And 
It would be an ocu- occupational therapist. Too young to know at the time. Helping. Should have trusted your child instinct by the sounds of things. All right. So that's the first one that we got tripped up on uh, perceptual motor programs, not evidence-based at all, but where the brushes. Next one, the fifth on the list was problem-based learning. So this is student-centered learning occurring in small groups with a facilitator. Authentic problems are presented to develop required knowledge and problem-solving skills. And new information is acquired through self-directed learning. Turns out this one is non-evidence-based with an effect size of 0.15. And if you stick around for a bit later on, uh, Beth asks a question that's kind of questioning this evidence-based, non-evidence-based dichotomy, and that leads us down some interesting paths. So if at this point you're feeling a little unsure, a little unsold on this evidence-based, non-evidence-based dichotomy, stick around for that conversation. What about learning styles instruction? We've all thought, this is kind of like the multiple intelligence, intelligences that we talked about previously. And just as with multiple intelligences, this is a non-evidence-based approach. The next two ones are peer tutoring and setting goals. These both have a very similar effect size of 0.55 and 0.56 and are both evidence-based. Reading comprehension programs, uh, which include the use of activities to attempt to improve comprehension of written text, may include strategies such as asking questions during reading and summarizing texts, are evidence-based, as are mastery learning programs where students are required to attain a certain level of achievement prior to progressing. Direct instruction is very famous and obviously evidence-based. Whole language reading is pitted in this study against phonics instruction. Phonics instruction comes out on top as evidence-based with an effect size of 0.6, whilst whole language reading comes out with an effect size of only 0.08. And finally, listeners won't be surprised to hear that formative evaluation, also known as formative assessment, is evidence-based with an effect size, the greatest one in this study, of 0.9. So back to the interview with Jenny Stevenson. A couple of things came out there that even even for those who had who had glimpsed the paper or read it, um, some of these kind of educational myths, I guess, are still quite pervasive. Um, even oh, even despite yeah. yeah, even despite multiple exposures to the evidence. So with that, we might jump on to the fourth question. What is the relationship between student-teacher ratings of research support and empirical evidence for common instructional practices? So, first off, Jenny, what did you expect to see when looking at relationships between student-teacher ratings of research support and the evidence basis for these practices? Um, Well, we weren't too confident that um, people would be able to identify evidence-based practices, and that was pretty much borne out. Um, We only got a modest correlation between um, their rankings of what was evidence-based and what actually was evidence-based. There was a tendency for people to think that pretty much everything had research support rather than being a bit more discriminating. Mm. And I've realised I've just jumped ahead because there was a paragraph that kind of, uh, well, we just went through our results as a as an ERRR, but in the paper you had a pretty clear um, summary of it. So I might just I might just share that. So it was formative evaluation was ranked significantly higher than two uh, non evidence based practices and significantly lower than one evidence based practice. Metacognitive strategy instruction was ranked significantly higher than two non-evidence based practices. Phonics instruction for reading was rated significantly higher than one non-evidence based practice and significantly lower than four others. So that's a bit of a worry really. Yes. yes. I, again, which year was this which year was this uh 
Um, when was it published? 2014. I'm pretty sure we would have done the survey 2013. We got it out fairly quickly. Um, as far as phonics instruction and preparation of pre-service teachers, I don't think much has changed. We've got a doctoral student at the moment who's looking at the content of early reading instruction for trainee teachers and yeah, there's not a lot of emphasis on evidence-based practice still. Scary. And you've got here, interestingly, phonics instruction was not ranked differently to whole language reading instruction. Yes, that would reflect academic perspectives rather than the research. Yeah. There are crickets in the background. That's okay. Great. There, there are a couple of other points there, but I think we captured them in broadly in our discussion uh, with the team here anyway. Um Okay, so something that captured kind of what you just talked about in terms of the correlation or otherwise between the evidence and what people said was going to influence their uh, instructional choices, I've got this other other quote from your paper that I thought I'd share and then just let you let you talk to. So the very high level of confidence of respondents was of particular note. Um, the highest level of unsure responses was for perceptual motor programs, which we also saw some people uh, here today suggest they're unsure about, with only three other practices exceeding 10%, phonics, instruction, whole language reading, and mastery learning. Um, Bain and colleagues reported that pre-service teachers tended to endorse described interventions despite acknowledging lack of prior knowledge or exposure. Um, could you talk to that a little bit? Yes, well, we just found that pretty weird that people would endorse something that, that they didn't really know what it was. Um, and we gave people the unsure option, but as you've just pointed out, not many people took advantage of it. And most of the ratings were, you know, towards that high end. Um, yeah, so as we've said, people were pretty confident in their ability to make those judgments, but their judgments um, didn't always line up with the actual research. Mm. And then from that, uh, you draw the following conclusion. Their suggestion that, quote, more attention should be paid to teaching critical evaluation skills as a part of preliminary training of future educators would appear to be supported by the current study. Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, all trainee teacher education courses should have a component on understanding research and understanding how to evaluate research. But increasingly, that's getting much more complicated. Now, when you look at research, you're not only looking at the findings of the research, but to come up with an overall judgment, you've also got to look at the quality of the research studies. And some of that can get quite technical. Um, so I'm not sure that even one unit would equip people to make critical judgments. I think there's a much bigger role for the powers that be in education departments to um, critically evaluate research and pass that information down to schools and teachers. I mean, once you get out teaching, as you guys have probably discovered, um, you're pretty busy. You don't have time to cruise through the research and digest it and come up with decisions. So I think not only pre-service teachers having a grip on it, but I think there's a real responsibility for education authorities to digest the research and, and pass that down to schools. Cool. Related to um, kind of furnishing pre-service teachers with some of these skills, Michaela had a question. So 
My question was in relation to understanding some of the thinking around what you are looking for in terms of um, understanding evidence-based practice and specifically what some of the mindsets, attitudes and ways of thinking um, would be that you'd expect to see in evidence-based practitioners and why you see those particular mindsets or attitudes as being important. Yeah, I think the basic mindset underpinning evidence-based practice is that scientific mindset um, that acknowledges that your own personal experience is not necessarily a good basis for making judgments and that scientific research strategies are set up to make sure that we're not influenced by our own biases, um, that what we get is a fairly objective finding about whether something works or doesn't work. So I think I think that, um, yeah, a scientific essentially it's essentially a scientific mindset, I guess, and a bit skeptical too. When someone comes along to sell you the next miracle cure, um, you want to know. Show me the evidence. Great, I'm quite interested in this because um, there there is a lot of discussion at the moment in education circles about teaching skills like critical thinking uh, and evaluation and things like that. Uh, some are real advocates of this and some people more kind of preference the teaching of knowledge because they argue that in order to critically think or in order to problem solve or reason, you actually need stuff to critically think with or stuff to reason with. That is knowledge and understanding. So, um, I mean, we've got a teacher educator in the room here uh, and we've got you here as well, Jenny. I'm wondering what people's thoughts are um in balancing teaching knowledge, for example, simply listing these uh, instructional practices and teaching people whether they are or are not evidence-based as a way to kind of remedy or guard against uh, non-evidence-based practices compared to teaching uh, critical thinking in and of itself? Um, I would say that there's probably not a lot of research that would show that you can teach things like critical thinking and problem solving apart from specific content. I think a lot of those skills are domain specific and you can't think critically about something unless you actually have a fairly sound knowledge of that particular field. Um, I guess that would be my my position on it. So teaching content is important and I don't see why they can't kind of go hand in hand, but I think you need some content before you can um, critically evaluate something. Hmm. Catherine? Yes, well, but I think what you can do, and I was having a chat um, downstairs before we came up, is that you can you can actually instill some habits of thought which are very, very useful. And the one thing that I was advocating for downstairs was teaching people not just to talk about what, but to be always thinking why. Why? Yeah, that is the basis of, you know, of beginning to be open-minded. I don't like sceptical as a thing. I prefer open-mindedness. Open-minded. Well... You know, there's a there's a there's a solid history about why open, uh, the idea of open mindedness I think is better than scepticism. Apart from anything else, it becomes um, a kind of reflex kept scepticism, a refusal to believe or trust in anything which is not useful, sort of perpetually, you know, sixteen for the rest of your life or something, I suppose. But I do think that um, that habit of mind, for instance, as I said, using the why question, why do you think that? Why do I think mm. that? Um, is very useful. But no, 
um, and I put a tiresome little post up on the the Facebook page where I talked about my own experience of having to critically evaluate stuff as an undergraduate when I was thinking quietly to myself that I didn't know enough to have any right whatsoever to criticise what I was reading and having marked two zillion at least essays where students have been asked to critically evaluate and basically what they do is right at the end trot out some stuff that they read in the textbook Um, because you can't and I reckon that I was able to critically evaluate work in psychology at some point during my PhD. can't tell you exactly when, but I woke up one morning and realised that, you know, I actually did know enough to be able to look at an idea and, and decide whether it was sound or not. Yep. And I think once you get, as you say, once you get those skills in a particular content area, you're very aware that you're not equipped to critically evaluate things that are outside your own discipline knowledge. Yeah, you become yeah. you become much more um, modest, actually, the, in a way. The more, cautious. Yeah, much more cautious. You know, the more you know, the more you realise how little you know. Little you do know. You know, like I'm living through a bathroom renovation at the moment for my sins. I'm living th- God help me. Um and, you know, I've got no idea whether what those boys in the bathroom are getting up to is a good job of work or not, you know. But, you know, show me a psych paper and I'll have a fair bit to say about it. Fortunately, Steve's very good at looking at stuff like that and going, that's not quite square or something similar. Yeah, so I don't know. Is that helpful? Yeah, I think we've touched on some some key stuff there. Um, another thing in terms of uh, – I was reading a really good – blog post the other day which I'll also link to in the show notes that was talking about how to analyze uh, education research or the proponents of a certain educational intervention when it comes to you and what this person was suggesting was kind of in line with asking why the a key question to be asking is what is the proposed mechanism by which this works um, and I think that can be a, a good thing for people to keep in mind as well when presented with these kind of arguments. To kind of move into the... I may have introduced underpants gnomes in positive pedagogy the year before. Well, it's just the underpants gnomes have this this, um, theory. They're going to make a fortune. They have this plan. They're going to steal underpants and they're going to make a fortune. But the thing in the middle is missing, the mechanism by which stealing people's underpants will yield them a fortune. So an underpants gnome theory is, you know, you will do this and there will be miraculous outcomes, but there's no link as to why doing this actually leads to the miraculous outcomes. Thank you for uh, furnishing the abstract concept presented with a specific example uh, and a narrative. Hopefully that will help us all to to keep it in mind. Um, The vividness will help us remember it. That's right. The picture, the imagery of gnomes stealing underpants. Okay. So, finally, we wanted to kind of broaden our discussion a little bit. And and Beth was here and Beth had some really good questions in our kind of uh, our pre-interview discussion. So, I just wanted to hand over to Beth at this point. Yeah, I might have trouble wording this. I'll do my best. I guess um, when I was reading, I was kind of questioning the idea of evidence-based practice and um, whether you can really classify something or... I guess the way in which you would classify something is evidence-based or not evidence-based. And I kind of felt like there was something a little bit dangerous about just dismissing something like based on current research um, and or a meta-analysis of current research results and saying that therefore it is not evidence-based. And 
I guess the example I would use is on inquiry learning and the idea that that should be, I guess um, the implication of your article seemed to be that certain practices shouldn't be followed up by teachers. Like you shouldn't, as a teacher, you know, you shouldn't use inquiry learning because that's not evidence-based and maybe you could discuss that um, further. But I think that's the kind of risk that this sort of um, research study or I guess, yeah, Hattie's meta-analysis can lead to that kind of simple, um, simplistic understanding of what teachers should and sh- shouldn't be doing. And I think, yeah, that example is interesting because inquiry learning, I guess the, <laughs> the research that's been done on it might not show when it does work. Um, so even though it might have been implemented in a lot of ineffective ways, I don't think it necessarily shows that it couldn't be effective in particular circumstances. And that's something I was interested in this. I was reading and on what Hattie had to say about this. And I found a quote where he was mentioning that, you know, there are certain circumstances in which inquiry learning is effective and some in which it isn't. Um, so I guess I think, yeah, well, I'm very strongly in favor of that idea of having this scientific mindset or approach to teaching where you choose practices that have an evidence base. I think it's important not to, yeah, be too simplistic about what that evidence base might uh, look like. So I don't know. I guess, yeah, the, the question I just would like, yeah, to get some more of an idea of what you think about that, whether you think there is a risk of people taking a very simplistic interpretation on, yeah, what constitutes evidence. Yeah, I think people would like to have um, a list of, you know, these are good things to do and if you do them, everything will be right. Um, But as you say, it's not that simple. Even though these interventions have all got, or the evidence-based ones have all got a research base, that doesn't mean they're going to work with every child in every setting because they won't. Um, there's just no silver bullet in education. So I think um, the other thing to realise too that any judgement like this is based on the research available at the time. There'll always be more research coming out and you need to stay abreast of it, although for some things like perceptual motor programs after 50 years, if they haven't got any evidence, there probably isn't anything. Um, But I think if you're interested in using any of these practices that don't have an overall overall rating of being evidence-based, I certainly wouldn't say never use them. Some I might say never use, but something like inquiry-based teaching where, as you say, there's probably research still going on, um, you do have to look at the research and into some of the subtleties of it and, well, you know, maybe... It will work with these kinds of students, with these kinds of content. But I think you have to go back then and look at the research studies and look at the ones that failed, what kinds of students did it not work with, look at the ones that suggested that it might be successful, what kinds of students' content did it work with there. I mean, this whole um, research and evidence base is, is really complex. People would like, you know, a list, but you can't give people a list. Um, we'd like teachers to be intelligent consumers of research and be able to read it and make their own calls. Um, but at the same time, things that have got a strong evidence base should probably be among the things that you'd consider first um, when you're thinking, what will I do to teach this content to these children? Your first stop would be things that do actually have an evidence base. Um, I guess that's the way I deal with it anyway. 
but no, you're right. You shouldn't be. Sh- it shouldn't be simplified. It's yeah. It's like league tables for schools. It's just not that simple. I I agree with yeah your sentiment and what you've said, and I think that seems to be. I guess um, yeah, I'd kind of like to hear whether you think there is a risk involved in that, whether there are people who will interpret it in a very simplistic way because in a sense you're saying, well, no, they shouldn't have a list but they do have a list and, you know, the way that you framed your research paper is in terms of yes or no. That's that's the way I guess I think some people could read it and I think that's, yeah, I think that's quite dangerous especially, you know, in this current um, political situation we're in where governments really want to have numbers to back things up and they want to be able to say yes or no and clear-cut evidence and I think a lot of the time it's yeah more complicated than that so I guess yeah if you could say something about maybe the political implications or um, whether there are any risks in your opinion of framing it in terms of yes or no or non-evidence well, I guess it's, um, research can be a bit like the Bible. You can always find something to support your viewpoint or argue against the viewpoint. Um, I guess politically, one of the things that I've been interested in recently is this push for actually testing kids' phonics skills in year one. And I think the evidence shows that this would be a good thing to do so that we can identify struggling readers much earlier. And, of course, that comes back to the research base that shows that knowledge of letter-sound correspondences is fundamental to reading and should be taught systematically and explicitly. Um, Whole language approaches um, wouldn't support that. We know a lot of teacher education programs don't teach that or don't spend much time teaching it in preparing teachers. And we know there's far too many children who fail to learn to read. Um, So I guess there, that's one place where I'd be behind the political push to say that um, teach explicit and systematic teaching of phonics should be in every school and we should be doing some kind of checking to see that kids get their heads around that before they've failed reading for a long time. But then I guess there's other things where people might push from a research base that um, I probably wouldn't support. Um, But then I guess policy in education has been pretty much not pushing anything as far as I can see, not even. There's a lot of lip service to evidence-based practices, but there's very few actual policies that push people in that direction. Um, schools are still pretty much free to do what they like. Teachers are still pretty much free to do what they like. So what do you think would be the key changes that need to take place to schools? Because, I mean, one of the barriers that was brought up was that idea of teachers not having enough time. And is there are there any particular changes that you think need to happen for more evidence, um, more research to be brought into schools? Did you want to answer this? Well, I was going to say, number one, every kid is taught by a teacher who's qualified to teach what that teaching is, that teacher is teaching. Because part of the disastrous problems that we have with mathematics is due to the fact that so many kids have got people teaching them maths who are not qualified. And the figures for the kids in the bush who are being taught by non-qualified maths teachers, for instance, is just catastrophic. 
And in our episode, uh, HBI episode with Paul Weldon, we discussed exactly that, the the rate of out-of-field teaching uh, in Australia. So listeners can check that out if they want a bit more info on those stats for the students in the bush. Did you have anything to add to that, Jenny? Oh, I guess particularly in special education, um, probably only about 50% of the people who are in segregated special educating setting, special education settings or who are providing support to teachers and students in regular schools actually have a special education qualification. Often it's the teacher who's got a spare hole in their program or they can only come in three days a week so they can be the special ed teacher or in one disastrous case I heard of recently they were so hopeless at controlling their kindergarten class um, they were moved to be the support teacher. So, an ongoing yes, challenge. Yes, it's all part of the. Yeah, have we actually got professionals in front of classes or not? Well, I mean, I was astonished when I came to Victoria and discovered that part of pre-service teach, uh, teach training, there is nothing here mandated on special education. That's right, but I think most unis have something now, though, even though it's not uh, mandated. Not sure. Certainly not at MGSE up until the point that I left. Um, VIT, the VIT now says that people have to do professional development in special ed. But, yeah, no, it's um, quite catastrophic actually. We have someone in the room who's doing special ed, really. It's not called that, but Jasper is in all, to all intents and purposes <laughs> being a special educator and I'll let Jasper decide how well he was prepared to do that. <laughs> So unprepared. <laughs> I, I think I got thrown in because my background is psychology and, well... Psychology equals weird equals special ed. <laughs> oh, you've, you've read about these in a textbook or um, I dealt with it through an undergrad degree. So, but now I'm finding it very rewarding. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely still feel ill-equipped and I need to educate myself on it a lot more. And I guess in the end, this also comes down to a question of funding when schools just have to plug gaps, uh, with whoever they've got around, it's going to happen. People are going to be teaching out of field and not until we, we kind of establish some more robust funding for for our public public schools, but in particular, uh, we're going to have these problems, uh, I would anticipate. Um, training eight primary school teachers for every um, gap in the workplace, but we're not training enough language teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, proper workplace planning wouldn't go astray either. Great. All right. Well, we'll drive, drive into these last few questions uh, then, Jenny. The first question I had, I might actually tack an extra question onto the front of these because I didn't actually realise how much time you spent uh, in the classroom. So perhaps if you think back to um, those, some of those special ed students who you first worked with or some students who you worked with before that, uh, how do you think they might uh, finish this sentence? Oh, yeah, I remember Mrs. Stevenson. She's the teacher who... <laughs> oh, dear. Um um, kids with um, high support needs, I guess, they're, they're a different kettle of fish. But I remember I went back to one school um, where I taught when I first qualified as a special educator, and this was about five or six years later. So what had been a 
a little boy in fourth class was now an adolescent. He had Down syndrome and he was rather well built and he come came bounding up to me, embraced me vigorously and said, you taught me when I was little. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> She's the teacher who taught me when I was little. Great. Thanks, Jenny. Now, a special ed kid of my acquaintance who's sort of Mrs. Scott, I'll, I'll kill her last because I like her. <laughs> Classic. All right. All right. Uh, next Next question. Um, what advice would you give to your first year researcher self? Always aim for the top quality journals like the men do. I didn't realise that until I actually um, collaborated more with male researchers. I'd always been a modest female and pitched at middle-level journals, but after that now I always start at the top and work down and it's surprising how often it pays off. I was actually reading a I was actually reading a paper the other day and it was saying something like I'll add it to the show notes and I'll, I'll check my facts um, but it was saying something like men self cite seventy percent more than women. Yes, I saw that somewhere too, and I thought, yeah, that'd be right. <laughs> so that's yeah, along along the same as the same lines. Um, next question. We're talking about uh, kind of staying up to date and being informed practitioners. Where do you get your kind of fix of educational research? Are there people you follow on Twitter or email lists or particular journals uh, that you kind of keep abreast of? Is there anything like that? Um, I use ResearchGate um, where you can follow people who've got similar research interests. I get a lot of content alerts so that when a journal comes out, they send you um, copies of all the articles. I follow a few blogs, Greg Ashman. Um, particularly um, colleagues alert me to stuff. Students are always a good source of uh, what's current. They'll yeah, often draw your attention to something you hadn't seen. Yeah. You just kind of get immersed in it, I guess, when you do it most of the time. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. And you're our first guest who's mentioned those kind of journal alerts. So that's a good one for, for listeners to be aware of. And finally, do you have any last calls to action uh, action of things you you might like listeners to do? Ah, go and read the research. <laughs> very, very fitting. Very fitting indeed. All right. Thanks so much for your time today, Jenny. It's been uh, wonderful chatting to you and uh, wish you all the best. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. I hope it was of interest and nice to see you again, Catherine, and nice to see that there are young teachers out there who are enthusiastic about the profession and open-minded and learning. Always learning. I never did make professor of interstitial studies. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> That's an in-joke. In-joke. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Jenny. We'll see you later. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Jennifer Stevenson. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at www.ollielovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, I'd love for you to write a review on iTunes to help more people to find the podcast. Towards the end of the podcast, I mentioned a statistic about men self-citing more than women. I've tracked down the original paper and it tells us that in the past two decades, men have tended to self-cite 70% more than women. This paper is by King and colleagues from 2016 and I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. If you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on today's show, 
I'd love to get a tweet from you. You can get me with the Twitter handle at Ollie, that's O-L-L-I-E, underscore Lovell. It's always a pleasure to hear from ERRR listeners. Thanks once again to the Australian College of Educators for their support in bringing this episode of the ERRR podcast together. Thanks for your time in listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. Thank you.